0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Deedee Willis, uh, CEO and board member, and Harold Garner, uh, colloquially known as Skip, the chief scientific officer and board member of uh, Orbit Genomics. And the website is orbitgenomics.com. So, D.D. and Skip, thank you for coming.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So, what's the, uh, the premise of Orbit Genomics?
2: Well, um Orbit is really based on a series of scientific observations that uh, I and my lab has made since the mid-90s when we started looking at the stranger parts of the human genome. Uh, At that time, I was co-directing one of the first human genome centers and we had begun sequencing the human genome the hard way and really noticed that there uh, there are particular pieces of the human genome which are very hard to analyze and to get right, and that that are these things called microsatellites. Also, uh, not only are they complex and difficult to measure, but they seem to be uh, more sensitive and fast response elements inside of your genome, uh, which which then makes them very interesting uh, and potentially very informative as markers for uh, disease, health, aging, things like that. And so we've been pursuing that uh, since then. And uh, what came out of it is Orbit genomics. So the first premise is uh,
0: Orbit will sequence your DNA and its, it's uses are what, forensics, um, identification of possible diseases that you may be uh, more susceptible to, or what's the, uh, the focus of the analysis?
1: Our first, you know, our the product as Skip mentioned, the technology can be used for quite a few different things. Um, but our first, our first go-to market product is actually a, an aid to diagnosis for lung cancer, and we've chosen that because one, there's a very tremendous need for the product. Currently, lung cancer is the world's deadliest cancer, and it's in part because there's no screening test for it. It's the only major cancer without a screening test. Um, And So it's typically diagnosed very late, and diagnosis today is done using a low-dose computed tomography test, a low-dose CT, but they have incredibly high false positive rates, so people generally who get a positive low-dose CT will need to get follow-on testing that's very expensive, and it's usually invasive. We've demonstrated in a pilot study that we can actually determine who is at very high risk for this so that we can confirm a positive low CT. So that's actually our starting point, although we intend very quickly after that to launch tests that will give people risk of multiple cancers. Let's skip, it. if you had something to add, please do.
2: Yeah, the the important thing here is that these million or so repetitive microsatellite regions in the genome. Seem to be very sensitive to uh, the, the kind of state of, of your body, <clears throat> and um, the, you know it's uh, environmental exposures and just uh, how general generally your uh, all of your cellular systems are working. So as a consequence, uh, it looks like they will be very informative. And valuable as risk markers and as ta- drug targets and, uh, and other, uh, diagnostic, uh, tools for virtually every complex multigenic disease. And those are diseases that include cancer, heart disease, and a variety of neurological diseases. It are, it's those diseases which, uh, being very complex don't really have good high sensitivity, high specificity, high accuracy uh, tests for them, and as a consequence, we think that exploiting microsatellites is a way to accomplish that for all of these diseases, which are uh, the primary diseases that ultimately affect and, uh, and, uh, and shorten the life of almost all humans. So what do you think is the uh,
0: reason that people have these microsatellite regions of their DNA? And if someone's predisposed to a condition, what does their microsatellite region look like as opposed to
2: someone that's not? Well, first, let me just define what a microsatellite looks like uh, in the genome. So you know that there's four letters, C, Gs, As, and Ts in the genome, and there's three billion of them. Well, occasionally in your genome, there are repetitive uh, sequences like CAG, 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 CAG. And uh, there are about a million of these spread throughout the genome. And these regions uh, are under a fundamentally different biological process for, for maintaining them. So they can grow from five copies of CAG to six, seven, 10, 20 or less. They also are known to cause a lot of diseases, Huntington's disease, Fragile X, a number of things, so they are directly causative of disease, and uh, they are, as I said, because they're under different uh, molecular and cellular processes than maintaining uh, all of the rest of your genome, they seem to be very sensitive to the cellular state, and so it is that that we have discovered and are exploiting to make new diagnostic tests, uh, new companion diagnostics and new drug targets. So how
0: um, in a microsatellite region, how, how many times is a particular sequence repeated on average?
2: Well, uh, <clears throat> there are certain regions of your genome uh, which have very long repetitive elements that can be thousands of letters long. We study uh, those regions that typically uh, have repeats that are 50, 60, 70 bases long, and therefore are easily measured by current uh, next-gen sequencing technology, which makes discovery possible. And it's also the, uh, the technology that we use uh, during, uh, for actually creating our clinical test. So uh, these repetitive elements, uh are play a, a lot of different functions you've heard of telomeres which are the ends of the chromosomes and there's re, uh, repeats there but we're really focusing on the repeats that are directly inside of genes in the part that actually codes for proteins or parts that control the production of proteins or the amount that's there and and uh, and alters uh the structure of proteins so they actually uh, have a, a high impact in the genome when they vary why would uh,
0: organisms have these repeats what what functions do you think these serve
2: well uh, first of all, <clears throat> okay well, first of all, uh, it appears as though almost all organisms except for the the simplest viruses have many many repeats you know these microsatellite regions in them regions in them and I think that what uh, they're there, you know, this could be a philosophical debate about why nature put them there. But in reality, from a scientific uh, standpoint, they appear to be there so they can, uh, so that your genome can adjust a, on a very quick evolutionary timescale. In other words, for example, uh, corn and, and plants uh, like that have many more of these microsatellite repeats than humans do. And that's because they're out exposed in uh, to the environment. And should the environment change become, you know, wetter or drier or colder, they have to respond very, very quickly. And it seems as though they use this rapid ability for these portions of the genome to expand and contract and enhance the survivability of a particular organism, corn, uh, cows, or humans. So is a, if a, a sequence is repeated, uh, I don't know,
0: five times, when it's used to uh, create proteins, are you able to notice if the entire set of repeats is used or just one set of the repeats? You know, for instance, could you selectively knock out some of the repeats? If the normal organism has five and you knock it out down to three or even one, will that organism still function? You know, how do you elucidate the mechanism of how these things are used?
2: Well, first of all, uh, you know, we study these where they've expanded or contracted. And in general, they're in places that are not lethal to the organism. So um, if it was, that cell would die and we wouldn't be able to study it. Uh, But uh, these expansions and contractions uh, definitely alter a protein, which can alter whether it uh, functions or not. And again, if it's an essential protein, it could be lethal, but otherwise it could simply change uh, how well that protein functions in your genome to uh, to do things like control growth uh, or to uh, control death, which are two hallmarks of cancer, uh, or control uh, how effective your immune system works, which is uh, another hallmark of, of your uh, ability or inability to attack a cancer that's in you. So these microsatellites appear to modulate the functions of many proteins as opposed to killing the function of any single protein. Is there any correlation between
0: the number of repeats and the modulation or how it modulates protein?
2: Actually, there is. And um, we did studies a long time ago uh, on dogs and we found uh, the gene and that controls the length of a dog's nose and that seems to be controlled by a microsatellite where if you had uh, x number of copies of this microsatellite you have dogs with collie noses and if you have y number you have dogs with pug noses so in addition to controlling things like life or death of cells they seem to play an essential role in many traits that uh that uh, govern us as humans they could change things like uh uh, the morphology, like in dogs that I mentioned, uh, our ability to fight off disease, uh, preferences, how well we smell, all kinds of things like that, you know. Uh, so they seem to be a tuning knob uh, that nature's put in there uh, where we can control a lot of different functions uh, and a lot of different traits and a lot of different diseases that uh, play a role in humans and indeed all animals uh virtually all life on the planet have uh, people
0: tried to add additional repeats you know to make like a pinocchio dog for instance
2: yeah actually we tried that we wanted to make uh collie mice and pug nose mice and it turns out microsatellites are you know as i said they're very difficult to analyze and indeed orbit genomics uh has you know we spent decades uh uh, developing algorithms so we can understand their uh, function and measure them in in the genome, but also doing things like using uh, knock-ins, knockouts, or the new CRISPR technology. Uh, microsatellites uh, can be altered that way. We've been doing it in the lab and observing things like uh, important uh, diseases or important genes that play a role in cancer X uh, that uh, seem to be control have a microsatellite in them that uh, that we find is uh, is important for that cancer uh, aggressiveness or growth rate or something like that as we go in with CRISPR and we change it from being an abnormal number of repetitive elements to a more conventional number, then the growth rate of those cells slow down. and if we alter it, the growth rate of the cells uh, speed up. Again, a, a very much a hallmark and an indication of cancer.
0: Have you seen that, um, for instance, a non-cancerous cell may not have a microsatellite, but a cancer cell will have a microsatellite? Or is it, just, is it just the number of repeats, the size of a microsatellite, that modulates the, um, the aggressiveness of cancer, for instance?
2: It's the latter. It's uh, not that a microsatellite uh, tends to disappear are not exist. It's that uh, it expands or contracts and then alters some uh, protein or some regulatory element sufficient to push a cell from being normal into a cancer state.
0: Well, what about the um, transcription of a given microsatellite? And let's say there's know, five repeats. Will the transcription always be all five repeats? Um, will the transcription sometimes include part of a sequence that's not part of the microsatellite? You know the the microsatellite plus you know an extra sequence on one side of it or another have you seen if it's very modular how they're used
2: yeah so first of all there are microsatellites that are in the coding regions of, of you know genes of pro of proteins and then there are ones that are in the intergenic regions uh, or intronic regions that are kind of outside of the sequences that are transcribed but they're again there are thousands of microsatellite or repetitive elements that are in the transcribed regions of, of genes. And, uh, and indeed they're flanked on either side by non-repetitive sequence. And when that particular sequence is being transcribed, it just goes into a, uh, a repetitive element and then the, um, uh, the amino acid tends to be repeated. So because most re- repeat elements that are within the the coding parts or the transcribed parts of genes have uh, the repeat element is either three or six or nine. And so thus, the, uh, the amino acid sequence uh, can be repeated many, many times. Now, in particular, we've made certain discoveries where the microsatellite in a coding region will expand not by three bases or six bases and therefore uh, keep reliably making all the amino acids afterwards, but it's something called a frame shifter where if you just, it adds or deletes only one base out of its uh, uh, entire repeat, it will cause you to shift into a frame and then after that, all the amino acids are really nonsensical and so it really disrupts the function of that protein. And so those are the ones that are the most impactful. And in particular, those are the ones that we study for things like uh, drug targets. But many of the other ones that don't uh, shift frames or um, are in regions outside of that that's transcribed are nonetheless very informative and, and uh, play an important control uh, function in your genome. Have you seen microsatellites that
0: um, repeat in another region, a separate, disparate region? You know, we've got five repeats here, and then you know, a thousand base pairs away, we've got another microsatellite that's exactly the same sequence.
2: Well, um, we have not seen where there is a linkage or coupling between uh, one given microsatellite and another. Uh, the way we evaluate these things tends to tell us the individual value of any particular repetitive element. Now, as you know, a long time ago in the early days of really uh, genetics and uh, exploiting DNA, uh, microsatellites were used as linkage markers in order to be able to identify variants and changes in your genome that uh, are causative of disease. Now that in this era where it’s easy to sequence your genome and figure out uh, you know what do the variants do, we really don’t use linkage analysis that much, but nonetheless we still uh, look at correlations between uh, individual variations at microsatellites, for example, or SNPs or other things, and a particular trait like uh, having cancer or not having cancer. Have you tried to? maybe insert a non-coding
0: uh, you know, part of the sequence right in the middle of a given microsatellite to see if that disrupts it or if that alters it?
2: Well, we haven't had to do a lot of those studies. A lot of those things have actually happened in nature. I mentioned Fragile X, So, and there are a number of other diseases where uh, it's a sensitive area, a break point, where you can have, uh, in this repetitive element, have it break and then recombine with another portion of another chromosome. And those things can result in rather, you know, some very severe uh, diseases. And so uh, they are susceptible to uh, rearrangements in your genome. There's hot spots for places where your genome can rearrange. Have you tried to deliberately add a, a, a duplicate microsatellite in a different region
0: of the genome to see what that effect would be?
2: No, we haven't, but sounds like a cool idea. Um, I know that people have done things like, uh, put in duplicate, uh, genes and a lot of genes, uh, have microsatellites in them. And so, uh, you know, whether it's a dosage effect because you have the whole gene there or not, uh, certainly, uh, you, the microsatellites continue to play a role in, uh, whether you have one or multiple copies of a given gene. Well you know, why do you think microsatellites can
0: modulate things like the length of a dog's nose? Do you think that, you know, if you have a certain sequence that codes for a given protein, because it's repeated more, that means just maybe three times that amount of protein will be uh, transcribed and created and raised that level and that modulates, you know, the morphology of a dog's nose or other things or the expression of something? Just because there's a lot more well, of
2: it? Uh you you actually got it perfectly. Whether you're modulating the amount of protein or the effect of a given protein because you've altered its sequence slightly. Uh, if you look at SNPs or single base variations in the genome, largely they are things that uh, that either uh, affect something or does not affect it. It either has a, a C there or a T there. However, the microsatellites have a continuum of possibilities that you could have five copies, six copies, seven copies, 10, 20 copies, uh, and that allows you to have an adjustment or uh, a tuning knob uh, for, uh, again, the amount of protein that's made or the, the structure of a protein that ultimately can uh, alter things like the morphology of a dog nose or your susceptibility to disease or whether or not a cell really becomes cancerous or not. So, uh, indeed, it's really uh, probably nature's fine-tuning knob for a lot of things that go on. And does uh,
0: this interact with epigenetic changes, you know, methylation, histone deacetylation? Does it, does it happen differently for, um, you know, for these microsatellites and the phenotypic expression of them?
2: There have been a lot of studies, uh, especially about 10 or so years ago, looking at methylation, especially at things called CPG islands, which, you know, tend to uh, also ha- have uh, a lot of repeats in them like uh, Cs and Gs. And so uh, there seems to be a, a correlation or some coupling between certain uh, epigenetic processes uh, and the fact that they take place uh, at uh, microsatellites. So microsatellites not only can change things because of the fact that they can uh, alter their genomic sequence, but they also may alter their, are uh, there are various epigenetic processes that can alter, you know, their methylation uh, status or something like that and play a role, uh, which of course is, uh, can be turned on or turned off uh, in any given uh, uh, cell at any given time. That I means these microsatellites lend themselves to
0: epigenetic modulation or do they dampen its effect? Any interaction there?
2: Well, I uh, I don't think that's known right now. I, I do think that people know there's an association. And indeed, one of the reasons why I started really studying microsatellites was I was very disappointed in the, the big discrepancy between the known amount of, of, uh, of genetic components of a disease, which is Uh, measured by family studies, whether things are passed down or not, and whether there are genetic components, whether it's a single base variation or some epigenetic process or something else that could explain or account for that amount of, uh, that known uh, or uh, suspected amount of genetic component just can't be explained. And so it was, uh, it was for that reason, I really turned my attention to studying microsatellites because there was uh, many of the genetic components of diseases, especially these complex diseases, uh, are really uh, unexplained to date. Have you seen a, a correlation in how easily
0: a particular pathway is upregulated or downregulated, if it's associated with a microsatellite or not?
2: Yeah, we've actually, uh, again, I said there's microsatellites are encoding regions, but they're also in regulatory regions and uh we've uh we study that as well and we find very frequently microsatellites that are uh, actionable or informative that really seem to play very much a role in disease are either closely associated with a regulatory element or some other functional element in your genome and indeed we've actually published on uh, uh on a microsatellite that is uh in the regulatory region right next to the coding region in certain genes that, uh, that control uh, susceptibility to breast cancer. And so in that particular case, the expansion or contraction really alters a transcription factor binding site. And so it works by the fact that the expansion or contraction makes it so that various other proteins can or can't uh, bind as well to particular uh, genetic regions. So there's all different ways in which these uh, microsatellites can act or various mechanisms through which they can act to, uh, to cause disease, to, uh, to affect your response to disease, uh, and to uh, change things like traits and a variety of other things like that in your genome. As, um, in, if you look at a family,
0: do you see changes in the microsatellite length you know, throughout various generations? Have there been any studies done that have looked at that?
2: Yeah, so actually, uh, it was a an experiment I did a number of years ago, right after the introduction of next gen sequencing, that uh, where I made a critical discovery that is really the basis for Orbit Genomics, and that is uh, we were studying uh, mother, father, daughter, you know, families like that that had been sequenced. And uh, and of course we know that Mendelian uh, inheritance means that you get one copy of your genome from your mother, one from your father. So therefore, a daughter uh, should ha- should have that at every place in the genome. But what we discovered was that um, using the latest next gen sequence data, that uh, indeed the uh, the the sequence that was that was received by the daughter appeared to not agree with the parent's sequence 80% of the time. In other words, it was correct. In other words, Mendelian inheritance only worked 20% of the time for microsatellites. Well, it turns out that's not a, a function of nature. That's a technological flaw that we discovered and then discovered a workaround. In other words, the algorithms that are used to analyze and assemble the raw DNA sequence from next gen gets it right only about 20% of the time. Uh, what we did was completely change the way in which we uh assemble uh these uh genomic reads from next-gen sequence at microsatellites, which drove our accuracy from 20% to 95% plus. What that means is that. Uh, for the first time using next-gen sequence, we could actually make discoveries. Because if you have 80% noise, you are not likely to see any uh, correlation or understand causation or anything else. So once we uh, established these new algorithms to correct the human genome sequence, that opened the floodgates for many, many discoveries that are the basis of the the new diagnostic tests uh, for lung cancer for other cancers that are part of Orbit Genomics today that are part of a pan cancer for all cancer uh, risk diagnostic for Orbit Genomics, which is tomorrow, and also the basis of new drug targets and uh, companion diagnostics for various uh, drugs and their effectiveness, uh, which is the day after tomorrow for Orbit Genomics. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a huge step
0: forward. (laughs) I don't know if it's worth chasing the last 5%, but where do you think that that error comes from?
2: Well, uh, the question is whether it's an error at all. So, you know that you're supposed to really inherit one copy from your mom and one copy from your dad, but there's also a spontaneous uh, changes that go about in your genome, and so uh, that last five percent, there may be a few percent of that which is technological, which we might improve in the future, or they might simply be the fact that uh, that there are these spontaneous variations that happen in these sensitive regions uh, when, of course, uh, you are uh, making a new human, that uh, that indeed might be real. Now, the reason why we think that uh, that that's probably the uh, happening, that there's these spontaneous variations, is because we have studied uh, the evolution of an individual's human genome over the course of their life. We published a paper on genomic aging, where we actually looked at, and we did next-gen sequencing of uh, various individuals, you know, at uh, one point in their life, 20 years later, 40 years later, and we identified that, uh, of course, you accumulate a lot more errors as you age, so things like SNPs you see, but microsatellites are particularly susceptible to changes as you age. And so uh, that became a, a kind of an interesting area where perhaps, and it looks like, we uh, can very much exploit that to measure an individual's genomic age and how fast your genome is aging. And whether or not you can change how much your genome is aging. Uh, again, the way to do that is if you have uh, a, you know, you're, uh, have a healthy lifestyle and uh, all the things are working correctly in your body, you're likely to make fewer mistakes and errors as your genome ages. However, if not. Uh then you can make more mistakes, and of course, some of these mistakes uh, will turn into things like cancers or other neurological diseases or heart disease or something like that. And so another application of microsatellites is to measure your genomic age, your aging rate, and how you might change your aging rate by things that you could do uh, in you know altering your lifestyle and thus altering your longevity. So these may be an important readout for uh, longevity and for uh, how you might adjust what you're doing or what your doctor's doing to maximize your longevity. That's really interesting. So what the, did you
0: notice that uh, certain regions of a person's genome did not change as they age? Did all regions change and some to a greater or lesser degree?
2: well i think it's too early to know that without a much bigger study that that we'd have to conduct but there are certainly regions that are very protected uh that that really if you uh altered them then it could be lethal and so therefore you wouldn't see that in a study because the person would have died or the cell would have died uh, but indeed i think uh that You'll, that a, a thorough study of this will allow orbit genomics to identify the most informative microsatellites throughout your human genome that are most susceptible to change due to things like lifestyle or, you know, proper medical treatment, etc., that could alter and affect, you know, your overall aging, your longevity, your quality of life, your health. Do you see any potential for reversing? some
0: of the accumulated uh, alterations to the DNA as someone ages?
2: Well, uh, the answer is probably. Uh, we have seen and uh, you know, in this aging study where uh, we can alter the rate of changes one way or another. But certainly, again, microsatellites uh, are quick response elements that can respond uh, faster than any other parts of the genome and expand or contract. And so... That means that they, uh, because they're fast response elements, they're very sensitive to, uh, to the overall conditions of a cell. They very well may be able to be, uh, to expand and contract and be a direct readout of, of things like, uh, return to a healthy state or diverging from a healthy state. Right now, we're able to measure the genomic aging rate, uh, and so that's an indicative, uh, measure of, how well you're doing on things like lifestyle and you know maintaining your body. Uh, there may be additional layers that we can uh, capitalize on uh, to refine uh, those as measures of, of uh, your uh, aging rate and your, uh, your longevity potential. What sets the uh,
0: aging rate? What, what factors do you think are the biggest levers on the genomic aging
2: rate? Well, I think some of it has to do with a combination of the status of thousands of, uh, of genes and genetic variants that you inherit, but others, of course, have to do with the environment. Now, we know that there are certain diseases uh, that, uh, that cause increased aging and cause uh, these people to not only age faster, but they're susceptible to diseases of the aging, aged. And one of those is something called Fanconi anemia, which we published a paper on a few years ago. Where Fanconi anemia, in particular, is a defect in some genes that control how you repair uh, changes in your genome, especially uh, repair uh, uncontrolled expansions or contractions at uh, at microsatellites. And so that particular disease is illustrative of what can happen uh, when you really break part of your error correction mechanism, resulting in a very rapid aging and susceptibility to diseases as a child that are normally reserved for people who are, you know, seniors. And so that is an extreme example. But for the rest of us, uh, there again, there are thousands of of things in your genome that work together uh, to control uh, how many errors are made and how well they're corrected when cells are replicated. And of course, uh, that's not only the genetic component in there, but there's also this environmental component that if you're stressing cells when they're replicating, then they tend to not replicate perfectly or they tend to not correct uh, changes that are made perfectly. And so things like cellular stresses, and cellular stresses are environmental. Everything from you know what we eat to uh, every what we're exposed to, uh, carcinogens, mutagens, um, uh, good wine or bad wine. But have you have you sat in front of
0: um, a printout of someone's genome now and then 20 years? Or, sorry, now and then 20 years ago, and maybe color coded the differences and looked at it. And saw you know what's different about it and has anyone taken that approach
2: well that's exactly what we did when we did our aging study and published a paper on that and to kind of put it in some quantitative numbers that it appears as though uh, you know uh, several people in the study were accumulating uh, new errors in their genome uh, especially at microsatellite regions at a rate of about a thousand per year. Okay. Now you might think that's a lot, but that's a thousand changes out of three billion letters. And so only a small fraction of that thousand, you know, may end up in very important areas, but nonetheless, it only takes a few to really alter your life. Now uh, we did find one individual who was genomically aging at 10 times that rate. So there was either something that uh, that this person was being exposed to, or the fact that his germline genome, the genome he was born with, uh, just didn't perform as well uh, in uh, in making certain that uh, cells replicate their DNA or repair their DNA perfectly. Has there been any call to sequence someone every year,
0: you know, starting at uh, right when they're born? That would be fascinating to, to see Maybe a rise and fall of errors, or just a slowly slow continual accumulation, or you know a punctuated slow fast
2: accumulation of errors. Well, that's exactly uh, what uh, the future of Orbit Genomics wants to do for everybody. We know that uh, you get a lot of the story about uh, your susceptibility to, z- to disease and your response to uh, to drugs and other things. Uh, through the germline that you're born with. However, because you're uh, aging continuously, then it means that you really ha- should be making that measurement occasionally. And I agree with you. I think that uh in the future, all of us will not only have our genome done, but we'll have it done every year so that we can not only measure our uh you know, our genomic aging rate uh to identify perhaps things that we could do to, uh, to make us age genomically slower and therefore have less errors that could lead to future disease. Uh, but uh, we could identify, uh, you know, certain variations that would suddenly uh, trigger a, uh, a very high susceptibility uh, to a particular disease or cause a disease. Uh, you know, for example, you know, the uh, creation of a new cancer cell because we, your genome has now uh, taken on some new variations that, uh, that are variants that really uh, make you more, make a cell more cancer like, whether it uh, changes growth rate to be higher or lower or evade your immune system. But indeed, I think the future of precision medicine is to measure your uh, genome uh, very frequently a year or so and in particular focus on accurately measuring in your genome those regions that are most likely to be susceptible to changes and most likely to be very uh, very uh, actionable very uh, that can alter your uh, susceptibility disease and those are likely to be microsatellites. So I think the future is sequence your genome many times, but also focusing on getting the microsatellites very accurately when you do that. Yeah. Are you doing
0: that? I, just- I mean, you have the uh, you have the ability to do that like all the time. I would think that you guys, you know, maybe even you know secretly, but you'd be doing it all the time in yourself just to see what's changing.
2: Well, the the truth is that uh, that one of the things that uh, orbit has accomplished is that once we've done the discovery process and found certain microsatellites, which are really diagnostic for your susceptibility to a given cancer, lung cancer, for example. When uh, when we do that, we use publicly available data, uh, which tends to to be about uh, you know technically when you do a next gen sequence, you get about thirty copies of your genome to put it together, and so that's pretty good, but when Orbit Genomics takes those things that we've discovered from uh, the publicly available data and, uh, and use those, put those into our assay, when we next gen sequence those uh, particular microsatellites uh, for, uh, for our patients, we sequence those at over 500x depth. So there's unprecedented accuracy uh, in our particular test, which then gives us Very, very high—you know—accuracy, sensitivity, specificity, and uh, ability to really inform uh, clinical decisions and personal decisions.
1: And if I could uh, just interject, one of the studies that um, Skip did and published on, we he actually we actually measured individuals and. Over course of time, and one particular individual we don't know what he was doing at the time, so we can't correlate it to any specific actions, but he started off with a relatively healthy genome um, and then seven to ten years later, he was extremely uh, unhealthy or much less healthy, had a lot more mutations, a lot more you know aging going on but then another seven to ten years later when we when the genome was we, sequenced and reanalyzed, he was actually back to a better state than he was in the first sequencing. So we know that people's genomes do change. And what you're suggesting is exactly what we would like to do is to be able to go out and get regular testing to see what is, you know, you're born with some risk, but then you're developing it through your lifestyle as well. And are there things you can do to change? And as your disease, if you know your elevated risk for something like colon cancer, or what if you change your diet, which is what everyone recommends, but today if you change your diet, you have no way to know whether that's effective other than just waiting to see if you ever get colon cancer. So it's those types of things that that is in orbit's future.
0: Well, I was going to joke and say that you should get sequenced before and after your in-laws come to stay with you for a month, you know, (laughs) and (laughs) see the breakdown.
2: Well, I understand um, that. That's a considerable stressor. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well
0: you did bring up something really important though. So you're saying you do have at least one person
2: where they were
0: their state regressed or improved. Because that's really interesting. I would think that only we would only experience either epigenetic changes that don't affect the underlying DNA or negative changes, you know, like a degradation, like you said. But you're saying you actually saw an improvement in someone's underlying DNA, and it must have been likely because of, you know, whatever their environment. Is that what you're saying? You've seen actually an improvement or reversal of damage?
2: Well, yeah. the answer is yes. Sure. And again, the reason why is that uh, changes in your genome can come about because when it's replicated, it's not replicated correctly. But also, there's lots and lots of genes and processes that uh, that continuously monitor the state of your genome and go in and correct uh, certain changes. And sometimes they correct them very well, sometimes not. And so it's entirely possible that changes can be uh, reversible because of things like error correction processes manage to work better and uh, return them to a more normal state. That makes sense. And then, sorry to hit you with 80 million questions. It's just so interesting to me.
0: Um, when you uh, sample someone to, you know, look at their DNA, are you looking at their blood? And have people tried looking at blood and skin and maybe, you know, cheek swab and comparing them, you know, each time someone's sampled? Because, you know, the, your blood cells, for instance, if you're sequencing them, they may be changing in a totally different way from your cheek cells or your pancreas cells or you know, your eye cells.
2: You're, uh, you're absolutely right. So for Orbit genomics, uh, the best and easiest and uh, quickest, most informative test is to look at your blood because you know your blood really samples a lot of your body as well, uh, and it's also fairly non-invasive. And of course, you can get your genome out of a cheek swab too. And so we've done both uh, and uh, and reliably gotten good sequence uh, out of both, but also. Uh, we have studied, indeed, the aging study that we uh, that I mentioned, a lot of those samples came from uh, layers, uh, you know, some tissue uh, below the skin. So, therefore, you know, uh, part of the things that may be going on there is environmental exposure. Now, uh, there are certain parts of your body which are really exposed to the environment, your skin, your, certainly your lungs, and certainly, you know, your gut. So, those are the things where... Uh, you know, you maybe want to uh, stay out of the sun, or you uh, shouldn't smoke, or you should eat a right diet. All those things can alter, especially the tissues that are very uh, exposed to the environment. But we have looked at and sequenced uh, and looked at the germ lines and things like tumors across all the different uh cell types in the body, and all the different cancers, and indeed, we find some microsatellites that are informative and unique to a given cancer, but time and time again, we're finding certain microsatellites that turn up in in, uh, multiple different cancers for being risk factors, so there are, without a doubt, certain repetitive elements, certain loci, certain microsatellites in your genome that are universal markers for your uh, propensity for getting cancer or getting uh, other complex multigenic diseases.
0: Have you compared at the same time, again, skin, cheek swab, blood, you know, tears, I don't know, multiple places on the same person and looked at to see if um, the damage profile was different in these different types of cells, the uh, microsatellites, the prolifer- pro- proliferation or number of them or character of them was different?
2: The answer is yes. Uh, and we've uh, put some uh, little bits and pieces in uh, papers in the past, but hold on to your hat. Uh, very shortly, uh, we are going to be uh, submitting a paper where we actually sampled uh, tissues uh, across multiple places in your body. And we actually did that uh, on uh, cadavers in our anatomy lab at the medical school. So, uh, and we produce, in that particular case, it's really to help our doctors be prepared for the future of precision medicine, where they have to really understand and interpret genomic data, uh, especially things like microsatellite-based tests, right? So, uh, we have a paper that is going to be submitted soon, where we tested, uh, again, uh, tissues from all of your body, and the ba- the bottom line on that is, of course, your genome is your genome, and uh, and it's it's very similar across all those tissues but also from one tissue to another uh, there could be uh, thousands of differences uh, in your genome between uh, one another again because uh, they're all under different uh, environmental conditions Uh, they they expand out of different uh, uh, earlier populations of cells and things like that so in general all the cells that you have are more or less genetically the same, but there are a, a lot, hundreds, thousands of differences. And, uh, and those can account for uh, perhaps your susceptibility to why certain tissues are more uh, likely to get cancers than others.
0: Well, very good. This has been a great call. You know, I didn't hear from you guys once uh, proprietary. We can't tell you. And you guys said yes to everything. It sounds like you're experimenting and, trying a lot of different things, and uh, I mean, the work that you're doing to help people with uh, their cancer is also honorable, so I appreciate you guys coming. W- what's the best way for people to find out more and get in contact?
1: Through our website, um, which is with an s.com or our email is info at orbitgenomics.com.
0: Okay. Well, Dee, Dee
2: and Skip, thank you so much for coming. It's been a great call. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure telling you our story, and I love to talk Mm. about science. I noticed. Me too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.